You are listening to a sermon by Dr. Richard Caldwell, produced by Walking in Grace. Walking in Grace is a listener-supported ministry. If you'd like to know how you can help these messages reach more people, visit walkingingrace.org media. Matthew chapter 17 is where we are today in our study of the Word of God. Matthew chapter 17. And in our study of Matthew, we've come to the ninth verse of this 17th chapter, and we're going to read to verse 13. Put this in its context. Let's begin at verse 1. Matthew 17, verse 1. And six days later, Jesus brought with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three booths here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. Behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. And Jesus came to them and touched them and said, Get up and do not be afraid. And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. Now verse 9, and as they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them saying, tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. And his disciples asked him saying, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he answered and said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah already came. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. Let's go to our Lord together in prayer. Lord, our hearts delight in the opportunity to sing to you our praises for the great salvation that we have experienced, even as we've just sung the blood of Jesus washing away all of our sins, our only righteousness found in Him, and knowing as a result our complete acceptance with You, knowing in our own experience the greatness, the perfection of your care for us, your wisdom, your love, your kindness, your faithfulness. These are things that we rejoice in, and these are things that are greater than our understanding of them. This morning we ask for, we need your gracious help as we encounter your word. I confess with joy that I know I, I am insufficient for this task, but at the same time, Lord, I rest in your sufficiency. And 
we together know that unless you teach us, we don't learn anything when we encounter the Scriptures, but you are here and we ask that you, by your Spirit, would be our teacher this morning. Would you strengthen us, Lord, in our inner man to receive the things that you've revealed in Scripture? Would you grant insight, understanding, conviction, hope as we listen? We gather today as your church. We know there are people hearing who don't know your son, and we ask for them that you would be merciful and save them even today. But we gather in obedience to your teaching in Scripture that we should make this our habitual practice, that we should not in any way neglect our gatherings together, as some do, but rather all the more, as we see the day approaching, exhort each other to live in light of the day. Lord, we gather today in obedience, and we do so because we know we need this. So would you meet with us today around your holy word and do your work in the hearts of your people? We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the great joys and what is the comfort in a believer's life is the knowledge that in every way Jesus has chosen to relate Himself to us. In every way that Jesus has chosen to relate Himself to us, He is greater, He is more faithful, He is stronger, He is more reliable than the ways that we choose to relate ourselves to Him. Christ has established a relationship. He saved us. He took hold of us. And in that sense, he, he has chosen to relate Himself to us. And in every way that He has chosen to relate Himself to us, it transcends our response to His choice. He is the shepherd, we are the sheep. He is the Savior, we are the delivered ones. He is all-wise, all-powerful, always present, always faithful. We are often foolish, always weak if left our own strength, often stumbling and failing, always dependent. He is God, we are not. He is the shepherd, we are the shepherded ones. We sang about it just a moment ago. We delight in it. We, as I said, we find our comfort in it. We rest in that knowledge. That because all of this is true, despite all of our weaknesses and despite our stupidity, we are always safe. He has taken hold of us. He will never let us go. And this came to my mind as I studied these verses this week because this is what I see when I hear the conversation of Jesus with His disciples, with these three men that He took with Him up on the Mount of Transfiguration, they make their way down and He has a conversation with them. And in that conversation, He's giving them information that they clearly do not fully grasp. He's talking to them about a future that they clearly do not perceive. And yet He's in control. They are safe. He is the shepherd. They don't have to fully grasp it. They don't have to fully perceive it. When the time will come 
that they need that greater understanding and they need that greater perception, they will have it. The Spirit of God will give it to them when they need it. And until then, they just rest in what He knows, in what He is doing, in what He has chosen. And that's our life. That's our life. So this morning, we're going to think together about our faithful shepherd. Four reminders of the weakness of a disciple, but the faithfulness of the disciple's shepherd. Four reminders of our weakness, but Christ's faithfulness. I'll just mention them as we come to them. The first one we see in verse 9, we see a command to wait. A command to wait. And as they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision. By the way, just a quick thought here. When he says, Tell the vision, he's not saying they had a vision. He's not saying that they had a dream of sorts. What he's saying is, talk about what you've seen with no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. You are to tell about what you've seen to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. A command to wait to talk about what they've seen. Now, this is... This is um, this is hard, isn't it? I mean, these three men have just been taken into an experience that is unimaginable, astounding. They have seen, they have been privileged to witness the glory of Christ as it will be manifested when He comes in His kingdom. They have, they have seen the divine nature shining forth in all of its glory and all of its strength and power as for a moment the humility of Christ's human appearance is, is drawn away and the Shekinah glory of God is on display in His very person, His face shining like the sun, His clothes turning bright white because of the light. And you... You hear a conversation as he's talking with Moses and Elijah, glorified saints in the presence of God. And then your Lord says, now you can't talk about this with anybody. Peter's married. <laughs> You're not to discuss this with anyone until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. Why would Jesus tell them this? Well, we've already talked about one of the reasons. The, the common perception, the common thinking of the day about the Messiah was, was misguided. And if you, if you tell what you've seen to a people who are looking for a deliverer, but the wrong kind of deliverer, they're going to hear the news through the grid of their misconceptions. Jesus doesn't want this. But what is on display in our verses is it, it's not just... The, the lack of understanding on the part of the crowds that is a problem, the Lord's own disciples don't really understand His mission. Peter has confessed who He is, and Peter's just the mouthpiece for the group. They, they have a grasp on who He is. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, Simon, 
Barjona, but my Father who is in heaven. Peter and these men have that, that the Lord has revealed to them. But what they do not understand is this talk about his dying and about his resurrection. One of the ways sometimes that you know someone doesn't understand something in a conversation is they ignore what is being said. Out of fear of revealing their ignorance, instead of just saying, I don't understand that, sometimes what people, what we do, is we just act like we didn't hear what we just heard. We just, we just pick up on the parts of the conversation we do understand. These men had heard teaching from the scribes about Elijah. They're going to talk about that. But do you notice Jesus talks about two astoundingly important things, his death and being raised from the dead. And do you know these men don't even mention it? They don't say anything about his death. They don't say anything about his resurrection. Why? Because they they don't understand it. Their neglect to talk about it is a clue right there in the text that they don't understand it. But Mark's account just tells us that they didn't understand it. Mark 9, verse 9, And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. So they heard him. No doubt they talk about it amongst themselves. But they don't ask him about it. What I want you to understand is the Lord took them up that mountain. He led them into that experience for a future day. You're going to talk about this in a future day. To their credit, they obeyed him. They kept the matter to themselves, the Bible says. But he takes them up exposes them to what they see, not because they were to share it in the moment, but because it would serve both them and us in a future day. This is not uncommon in the way that the Lord dealt with His disciples. You see this more than once. Jesus saying something to them, and He says to them, in effect, you're you're not going to get it now, but you're going to get it later. You'll you'll understand why later. You'll understand what this means later. Luke 22, 31, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Jesus telling Peter in advance what's going to happen, Peter doesn't believe it. Jesus has already prayed about the future. After you have turned, after you've returned, you're going to strengthen your brothers as a result of what you go through. Peter doesn't have any way of conceiving what he's about to do even though Jesus tells him. John 13, verse 6, He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? The Last Supper, the washing of the feet of the disciples by Jesus, Peter protests, as you know. Verse 7, Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, 
but afterward you will understand. John 14, verse 26, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give it to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I'm going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe. The Lord, leading these men into, into experiences that served a purpose in the moment, but the purpose was greater than the moment. It was going to serve them and others in the future, which is why you have a command here to wait. You're not to talk about what you've seen. I want to ask you, all the disciples in this room today, do you understand that our shepherd has never stopped dealing with his sheep that way? There are things that you and I experience now that we'll have a better understanding of down the road. In fact, some, some of it we're going to have to wait until we're with the Lord to have a full understanding of it. Perhaps I should say all of it in some sense. We have to wait until we're with the Lord to have a fuller, a complete understanding of it as to the degree the Lord wants us to. But we've all had the experience even now of, of, of walking through some experience at some point in our life that didn't seem to make any sense to us. And then you get further down the road and you look back and you see the astounding wisdom of your shepherd. That was not wasted activity. Those were not wasted experiences. There was a good reason for why he led you there, even though you couldn't understand it. What we learn today, what we go through today, we need to realize it's a spiritual investment. It's like an accumulation of treasure for future spending. Can't tell you how many times through the years now I've heard people in this church talk about how what they learned through the years about the sovereignty of, of our God served them in a particular test later on. A, a, a heartbreaking experience, something that severely tested their faith. But now all of those years of learning those truths about the sovereignty of God served them in that moment. They didn't know back here what they were going to face in the future, but what they were learning right then was not just for that day, though it was to serve them that day as well, but it was to serve them in the days to come. And not just serve them, but serve others as the Lord makes use of what He teaches us with the opportunities He affords to us to serve other people. What if I told you what you're going through today is not just for you, it's for someone else as well who will benefit from what you go through. 2 Corinthians 1, 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. God comforts us in our afflictions and that very comfort, I mean that very comfort is what we then 
make use of in our comforting of other people as the Lord comforts them through us. Paul was a great teacher of this, not only because he knew it to be true, but he himself had benefited from it. 2 Corinthians 7.5 says, For even, Paul writing about his own experience, For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. As he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still more. Paul concerned about the attitude of a congregation toward him. Titus going to find out the state of that congregation. He's encouraged by what he meets with there. And then as he meets with Paul, Paul's encouraged by his encouragement, which he received from their encouragement. I mean, just a chain of comfort. So that what one of us goes through is it's never just for us. It's for somebody else at the same time. So a command, how do we see the faithfulness of our shepherd on display? He, he has taken them into a place where they have this astounding experience, yet it's not time to talk about it. it they don't even understand it. But they will in a time future, and it's going to serve both them and all of us to this very morning as we sit here and read about it. It's going to serve others in the future as well. This is how our shepherd works. What are you going through right now that you've been discouraged about, you've been struggling with? Well, I want to encourage you to enlarge your perspective and trust the wisdom of your shepherd and know that there is never a purposeless thing that you ever walk through. And the purposes extend beyond the moment. They extend into the future. And it's not just for you. It's for everyone that you'll be able to serve as a result of what you've gone through. If you understand that, would you say amen? amen. Now, second, notice a question about the command. This leads to a question. Verse 10, and his disciples asked him, saying, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? The limited understanding of the disciples is on display in their question. Several things I want you to note with me. First of all, notice there still seems to be a measure of respect for the teaching of the scribes. Now that seems a little amazing when I first read that because they've already encountered the scribes through their association with their Lord. They have, they have seen these, these hostile encounters. And so as I first read this, I thought to myself, why would you care what the scribes teach? But remember that the Lord had already instructed His disciples about their attitude about these things. He talked about the religious leaders of the Jews and He said they sit in Moses' seat. And even if you can't live like they live, when they teach the truth, you listen to it. Good reminder, isn't it, that the truth of God's Word transcends the vessels used to deliver it. Just because a donkey tells you the truth, it doesn't make any less the truth. So they're asking about the teaching they've received from the Word of God. And they note that the scribes have taught that before the Messiah would be on the, you know, revealed, there's a forerunner. 
Elijah. This this was a well, and this is the second thing I would note, this was a well-established expectation on the part of the Jewish people that an Elijah would be on the scene before the Messiah would be revealed. The scribes had taught this. The disciples had heard this. They're asking about it. And we're going to see in a moment that Jesus says the scribes were not wrong. They, they got that right. Malachi chapter 4 is where they got that knowledge. Malachi 4.4, 4, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Before the day of the Lord comes, there's going to be an Elijah that comes. Why would the disciples be confused? This is the third thing I want you to know. Why would they be confused? I think there are two reasons they would be confused. One, Jesus is talking about dying. And if Elijah comes and there's a restoration that happens, right? Jesus is the Messiah. We're convinced of this. But but if Elijah comes first and there's a restoration, the hearts of fathers turn to their children, the hearts of children turn to their fathers, a repentance, a national repentance. Why would the Messiah be talking about dying talking about being rejected. How how does this make any sense? And then the second reason they would be confused is because they've just seen Elijah. And where is he? He's in glory. I thought Elijah was to come first, but we've just seen him talking with you, Jesus. He's not here. He's with the Lord. He's with God in glory. They're confused. James Montgomery Boyce makes this point. He says the disciples' question can be taken in two ways. I actually think it may be a combination of both, but hear what he says. One, as a chronological problem. If you are the Messiah, what about Elijah? How can you be the Messiah if the teachers are right when they say that Elijah has to come first? How is this to be explained? Most people who read these accounts take the disciples' question this way because of the word first, which suggests the problem with the sequence. I thought Elijah was to come first, you see. Then Boyce writes this. He says, as a theological problem, this is the second potential problem, first chronological, second theological. He says, this understanding of the question comes from the anticipated nature of the forerunner's ministry. Malachi 4.6 taught that Elijah would bring about the restoration of all things. But if Elijah was to do that, bringing the people to a right relationship with God as a precondition of the Messiah's coming, how was it that the Messiah would need to die? Who would reject him in such a happy age? So the disciples are confused. But our Lord gives them this lesson, takes them to the Mount of Transfiguration, gives them what we're about to hear in a moment, gives them these lessons knowing that their confusion will eventually be cleared up. So he's not just leading them into experiences that will make better sense later. He is giving them instruction that he knows they will have a better grasp on later. Their confusion does not surprise him. The faithfulness of our shepherd does not just extend to the timing of the use 
of what he leads us into, it also extends to our grasp of what he leads us into. He's greater than us. We can rest in what he knows even when we can't get our minds around it. And again, he has never stopped dealing with his sheep this way. Our God not only leads us into places that we say, I don't understand why, he also leads us into situations and gives us instruction that we just don't understand. Can we admit that? That we say to ourselves sometimes, I just don't, this just doesn't make sense to me. Why would it be like this? Or if you're talking about the Word of God, there are still passages of God's Word that we all still struggle to get our minds around. Been studying it for years, and you're like, I just can't get this settled in my heart. What does this mean? Isn't it glorious to know we can rest in our shepherd's care for us? His work with us transcends our understanding. He leads us in ways that precede his use of us. He teaches us in ways that precede our ability to grasp it. And if you live on this side of eternity long enough, you will have the experience where something you have grappled with, sometimes for years, here comes a sermon or here comes a class or here's another passage that it's just like it was never in the Bible before and it all becomes clear. And you're like, I've got it. I see it. Were you unsafe until you saw it? Or were you still safe in his hand every step of the way until you saw it? These disciples don't understand, but they're safe. The plan is marching on. They are right on course. They're going to walk through the very things that Christ has ordained for them to walk through, that God ordained from before time. They're going to go right through it, and he's going to hold on to them and sustain them, just as he prayed for Peter, that his faith would prevail. So Jesus holds on to all of his men. And he holds on to all of us when we can't make sense of our experiences or when we can't make sense of the instruction. He's still holding on to us. You and I are called not just to a trusting faith, but to the knowledge that we are engaged in a growing faith. And so we need patience. We have to trust the Lord when it doesn't make sense to us. We have to believe him when it doesn't make sense to us. I'm going to die, Jesus says. These men had to say, I don't know what that means, but I know he's telling me the truth. I'm going to be raised from the dead. At this moment, they don't know what that means, but they have to know he's telling them the truth. They talked amongst themselves about what that might mean. Third, we see a clarification in response to the question. Verse 11, and he answered and said, Elijah is coming. And will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah already came. And they did not recognize him. But did to him whatever they wished. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. I love this. The Lord answers their questions. Knowing they are confused. By virtue of the fact he tells them they can't talk about it until after his resurrection. He knows they're going to remain confused. And yet he still answers their question according to their capacity and in a way that serves them in their present need. His answer won't clear up all of their confusion. 
But he knows this is what they need at the moment, and this is what they have the capacity to receive. That's how he deals with them. He tells them where the scribes got it right. Verse 11, he said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. They got that right. By the way, it is interesting, isn't it, that he speaks of this in the future tense. Elijah is coming. Then he's going to go on to say, but he came. Why does he say it like this? Well, is it possible that there is still another Elijah who is coming before Jesus returns to the earth the second time? Before the second coming? Is that possible? Well, if you read Revelation chapter 11, verses 1 through 13, you have two witnesses on the scene during the tribulation period before the second coming of Christ. And if you read about what they're doing, it mirrors 1 Kings 17 and the ministry of Elijah. But even if that's not what Jesus has in mind, then he would certainly be affirming what they had learned from the scribe. They were right about this. They had, their eschatology was right in this area, that Elijah must come first. But where they got it wrong, verse 12, is they didn't recognize that Elijah came. I say to you that Elijah already came, and they did not recognize him. They taught about him, but when he came, they didn't recognize him. Were they expecting Elijah to swoop down from heaven? Remember, he was translated. Were they expecting sort of a reincarnated Elijah? What they met with was a man, by God's choice, who came in the power and the spirit of Elijah. He was an Elijah-like prophet. This is what John the Baptist's father was told. Luke 1.11, And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared." John the Baptist fulfilled what Malachi 4 promised. Interesting, isn't it, that when John was asked whether or not he was Elijah, he said no. And if you wonder how that can be reconciled with our Lord's statement, I think John understood their misunderstanding. I'm not Elijah reincarnated. I'm John. But he was Elijah in the sense that he fulfilled Malachi 4. He came in the spirit and in the power of Elijah. The religious leaders of the Jews don't recognize John for who he is in terms of his role. They mistreat him. Jesus speaks about his mistreatment. They did not recognize him, verse 12, but did to him whatever they wished. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. John suffers at their hands. And what the scribes did not teach, apparently to a degree that it registered with the disciples, is if the Jewish people rejected the ministry of 
Elijah and as a result refused the Messiah, what they were going to meet with was utter destruction. Malachi 4, 6, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. This is the hope of deliverance, but if you don't receive him, what you meet with is destruction. And Jesus tells them where the scribes will get it wrong again. Here's what they got right. Here's what they've got wrong. Here's where they're going to get it wrong again, verse 12. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. If you don't recognize the forerunner, you don't recognize the one to whom he points. And so just as they didn't recognize Elijah, so they won't recognize the Messiah, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands, which is why he's talking about his death, which is why he's talking about his resurrection. What is our Lord doing? He has led them into an experience that will benefit them and others at a future time. He has led them into an experience they do not understand, yet He instructs them they will understand later. He has supplied clarification that fits with their current capacity and with their present need, even though it doesn't clear up all of their confusion. It's an answer that is fit for the moment. And I say to us that with many of the things that confuse us. While our Lord doesn't answer all of our questions, if we will pay attention to His Word, we will find answers for what we're walking through. I think about some of the gut-wrenching things that God's people walk through. Death of a child, death of a spouse, loss of one's health. Sometimes things much less strenuous than that, and yet still gut-wrenching, the loss of a job, how are we going to face the future? And we wonder to ourselves, why now? I mean, look at my current course, Lord. Look at how blessed we've been. It, it just, this doesn't seem to fit, and we cry out to Him, and we don't get all the answers. But if you'll listen to His Word, there are answers. I mean, we know the basics, don't we? We know the road signs, even as we're talking about this morning, isn't your shepherd faithful? Doesn't he love you? Isn't his hand upon you? Has he forgotten you? Has he ceased to be sovereign? Can't you trust him even when you don't understand? Don't you know he understands? He's got a plan for this. Will you rest in that? Will you rejoice in that? It's one thing to rest in it. It's another thing to rejoice in it, isn't it? And yet we must come in a growing faith to that point where we won't just rest in it, we'll rejoice in it. I don't rejoice in the pain itself, but I rejoice in the knowledge that you love me. And you've got a good purpose for this. And then finally in verse 13, we see the fourth thing, that is a limited grasp of the explanation. He explains in verse 12 in a way that includes his own suffering which would speak to his need to be raised from the dead. So he explains it all, but they don't yet understand. Verse 13, then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. They got that part. Oh, so John the Baptist was the Elijah. That's right. They haven't put the whole picture together. They won't be able to until they live through what the Lord has ordained that they're going to live through. 
They're going to live through the betrayal of Jesus, the trials of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the burial of Jesus, and then the resurrection of Jesus, and the pre-ascension appearances of Jesus, and the ascension of Jesus. And before He ascends, He gives instructions about their future ministry. It's going to come together. Just not yet. And until then, what do we have to know? That our shepherd is faithful. I mean, even as Jesus is talking about things they don't understand, he's living what he's talking about. He has set his face like flint toward Jerusalem. He is going to voluntarily suffer everything he is predicting. And in that way, he loves his own to the end. As he describes what they don't understand, he will fulfill what they will come to understand. They are safe in his hand when the only one who understands is him. His faithfulness is greater than ours. His wisdom is greater than ours. His love is greater than ours. His power is greater than ours. His purposes for us transcend our understanding of those purposes. What a Savior. This is our joy. This is our comfort. Jesus is God and I am not. Jesus is the shepherd and I'm the sheep. Jesus loves me more than I love him, sadly. Sadly, in terms of my own failure. Jesus is strong when I am weak. Jesus is great and I'm always small. Jesus is trustworthy and I often wander. What a Savior, what a shepherd. I am safe in His hand. I want to ask you, do you know this shepherd? Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. Is He yours? Is He yours? Has there ever been a time in your life when you understood that salvation is by grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone? That Jesus died for sinners like us. That the eternal Son of God came into the world, born of a virgin, took to Himself an additional sinless human nature, lived for us before He died for us, died as a substitute on the cross, paying for all the sins of all of us who would ever trust in Him, And then God gives to us as a gift, as we believe in His Son, the righteousness we need to stand before God accepted, and it's the very righteousness of Jesus that clothes us. In every way, our shepherd saves us. Have you ever trusted in Him for salvation? And if He has saved your soul, can you not trust Him with your life? If He has saved you unto eternity, can you not trust Him with today? How pitiful are we that He would save us for forever and we wonder about the next day. How small is our understanding, just like these men, and yet we are safe. Oh, if that doesn't cause your heart to rejoice, I don't know that you understand it. Lord, help us to understand it, that we rejoice and we rest in our great shepherd. And the church would say, Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you.
for our Savior, and thank you for saving us so that we beheld your glory in his face and we turned from our sins by the work of your Spirit and we repented and we believed. Safe in the hand of God, safe in the hand of Jesus. Safe for today, safe for forever. Thank you. Thank you for saving us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.